0: There are certain skills, critical skills that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett.
1: Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I'm an internationally certified coach and I specialize in career management, skill development and career crises. Now we have a wonderful guest today, Mr. Bill Oakes. Now just imagine designing one of the most sophisticated instruments ever conceived, building it and then successfully placing it 1 million miles or so from the Earth. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope, the scientific successor to NASA's Hubble Space Telescope, is such an instrument and is now on station in full operation. Bill was the one who headed the James Webb project for over a decade, and he has been there and done that. So welcome, Bill, to It's All About Skills. Hey, Charlie. Glad to be here. I am delighted to have you here, Bill. And tell us a little bit to start off with about your background and the evolution of your career as a NASA project manager.
2: Sure. Um, So I started out as a college for electrical engineering. Um, When I got out of school, um, I got hired by a company that's no longer in existence, uh, Bendix Guidance Systems Division Um, that was up in Teterboro, New Jersey. But they were a subcontractor to lockheed martin for the building of the hubble space telescope and back then it was just called the space telescope so they haven't even thrown on the hubble yet um and we were a sub like i said a subcontractor to lockheed in charge of building some of the attitude control hardware but we also built what would basically be called the backup um the backup flight computer and the idea being that if the main flight computer gets in trouble the backup one just keeps the telescope safe you don't do science or anything you just keep it safe and so i ended up writing uh, most of the firmware slash software uh for that flight computer when i got out of school i did that up until oh well probably well into the well into the uh late 80s because we had a couple of redesigns but in 1983 my boss said hey would you like to go work down at goddard space flight center
1: that's nasa right
2: right like for <laughs> nasa not not for nasa but as a, a subcontract and again i was a subcontract to lockheed in oh, okay. the operational center for Hubble. I was like, sure, that'd be really cool. So I got to go down there, um, worked getting getting ready for uh, Hubble operations, um, left Bendix in 1989, and then uh, went to another company that's no longer in existence, <laughs> McDonald <laughs> Douglas. <laughs> but only stayed with them for about eight, nine months. And then I came back as work as a NASA employee.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, so tell us a little bit about your first experience as a project manager.
2: So that, that we fast forward to, and, uh, I was on Hubble till 1998. Um, I ran the operations for the first two Hubble servicing missions. Um, was that when then,
1: uh, Bill, is that the time that, uh, the, the Hubble had the problem with the blurry, uh, Yeah, for the
2: first servicing mission? Yeah, I was, I was there when they, when they discovered that. And, uh, that was in 1990, shortly after, you know, a few months after launch. Um, and we were, once we understood what the issue was and we understood what we, I would call the prescription, so that was wrong, mm-hmm. really you could actually compensate for some of the, what was some of the problems on the ground. And we were able to do very, very good science, um, but it was in during the first Hubble servicing mission where they put the corrective optics on to get the, f- the, the full capability of, of Hubble. Um, and then I hung around for the second service mission, where we were changing out some science instruments and so on. And I, like I like to kid around by about the end of uh, 98 or so, I got kind of Hubbled out. Um, I, had <laughs> a bunch of, I had done a bunch of different things on Hubble. So, I mean, it was such a big project. You could really do a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to start looking for something different within NASA. And my boss's boss at the time said, Bill, you know, I think you can be a really good project manager. And ah, so, so that's when you first got into the project management business, that kind yep, of stuff. Yep, and it was a very small program called the Solar Radiation and Climate Experiment. It was with the University of Colorado. Um, and it was a good experience because it was myself, full-time, it was just myself and my financial person, a mission business manager. I had a half-time systems engineer and a smattering of part-time other engineers. So it really forced you from a project management standpoint to do a lot of the things that you normally have to do but you normally would delegate to yourself so you learned through that whole process and um and that was great we launched that in 2003 and it was a five-year mission and it lasted close to 20 years oh my golly yeah it it only decommissioned it maybe a year and a half two years ago so what would you say when you became a project manager
1: were the kind of skills that you needed to be successful in that kind of role? You know, um, not, just, not, not the science skills and so forth, yeah. but, but basically running a project like doing the Hubble Hubble thing.
2: But I think um, one of the things you do, is especially, you know, Hubble wasn't really running Hubble, but it was, you know, that was more of an engineering, but I was starting to gain some management skills. I had people working for me. Um, and I think what you do is you start really with a basic set. And as your the size of your missions grow, you you do you keep developing more and more management styles. It it just kind of evolves and you learn more. Yeah. So with something like Source, um, that was a very small mission. Um, so the type of skills you did to me a basic skill for any manager is the ability to listen. Yeah. And uh, I, I, communication I, skill. Yeah. You I, bet. I, I mean, communications, but it's a it's a. Um, I always tell folks, you listen with a bartender's ear because you want (laughs) to hear all the stories, right? You want to hear all the stories and what's going on and you want to take in all that information. Yeah. Um, so I began to develop that there and then working with my counterpart at University of Colorado, because they were actually building the scientific instruments for source at the University of Colorado. I would go out to visit them once a month, sometimes twice a month. And the first thing we would do is we'd get up, we'd walk around and talk to some of the folks that were building some of the instruments. And I, that through that, I began to develop, I like to call management by walking around. Again, it's a communication skill yeah. where you go out and you really get to know the folks working for you. In this case, they were not really working for me, but I still got to know them. And by that, you began to build up trust and you begin to build up a really good relation to where, you know, especially later on on something like web where the folks work directly for me, they felt very comfortable, even at, when they're talking to the product, or just to be very open and, and say whatever they feel, which is what, really what I would want. Um, there's other ones. I mean, that kind of falls into your whole interpersonal type skills. Yeah. And how you work with people <coughs> and, and develop a work type relationship. Um, there's, there's, an educa- there's a continuing education part, but not in the formal sense. I mean, I have a couple of masters, but I got all of them before I ever started working for NASA. yeah, um, It really is learning by doing and learning and, and understanding that you're not perfect, that there's always the ability to learn. I know folks, uh, and I would never mention names at Goddard who thought they were God's gift to system engineering. yeah, And that they knew how to run a mission. And it was like, well, why do you have all these people working for you if you're just gonna say, do it this, this, and this way? You have people working for you that take in that knowledge and their knowledge, and make good, educated decisions. Do good, educated risk mitigation because that's really a major part of a project manager job is to mitigate risk, right? I'm not the one down there designing and building stuff. I'm trying to make, give, um, enable that capability for the engineers and scientists that work for you. So um, you really begin to learn a lot of that as you start out with a small mission. The mission I managed after source was Landsat. It's an earth imaging thing. And that was kind of a medium sized mission. Now from a cost standpoint source, um, back like an $3 was, um, I think when we launched, it was $122 million. Mm-hmm. And that was for, you know, a rocket, a rocket instruments, South spacecraft and five years of operations. Um, Landsat was more on the order of about 900 million somewhere around there and then you get the web and that's you know ended up being 9.7 billion dollars so wow skill set the skill set you has it has to evolve the large project that has to it has to evolve i mean um and with with a a mission like web it was an international mission so Mm -hmm. you develop skills in dealing with different cultures um i mean there's there's cultures there's different corporate cultures just across nasa from each NASA center. You've different corporate cultures in dealing with each companies. And now you have a different kind of culture that deal different cultures have to deal with, with uh, the Canadians built one of our science instruments, the Europeans built two of our science instruments and the rocket.
0: Hmm.
2: So you, you you really got it, and I like it. You get a chance to really experience all these different cultures and you learn from these also, and they learn from you. You get a little bit of the uh, a little bit of, well, if it's not done the way I do it here, it's not right you get that every place nasa is just as bad as anybody else yeah um, but i always remind people hey they launch stuff too <laughs> right <laughs> they fly satellites too they must be doing something right let's just figure out what and most times it's it's just variations on a basic concept
1: yeah you know Bill, <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like in your role also as a project manager you you were you were you were dealing with some people a lot of people and this is uh, you know it, 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 the the essence of a great manager sometimes i think is someone who can manage people and get projects done with people who are much smarter than they are you know you must have been dealing with some really smart people
2: oh yeah i always just told them i was just a dumb project manager <laughs> you when know, they come explain things to me they got to explain things like i'm just a dumb project manager explain it <laughs> at the right level not at some level that i can't attain because you got your phd and whatever you know and i'd be struggling to get to that point
1: but you're the guy who who throws a rope around the whole thing and pulls it all together. Now, t- uh, you know, let's turn now a little bit to when you uh, you got introduced to and uh, got involved with the James Webb Telescope. How, how did you wind up beca- uh, becoming the project manager of that of that massive project?
2: I took one for the agency. <laughs> <laughs> you what? I took one for the agency. <laughs> uh, Tell us. So about it. we were. So I was at the time. I was managing the Landsat mission. And we were still a few years from launch. And um, in parallel to that over on web, they had really had some issues. And and you could talk for hours about what type of issues were were going on early on, everything from lack of appropriate funding to some game playing and such. Um, But they had had an independent review come in and the independent review was pretty harsh. Um, And the project manager who was, um, who was there at the time who I knew who was a friend of mine I had worked for him at one point Um, he wasn't going to be able to even if he stayed on and did everything right which he was doing most things right he wasn't going to be able to succeed because he was not going to have the support of the agency behind him Mm -hmm. so I had gotten a heads up like a couple of days before the hey Bill you might get a call to, to like I say take one for the agency or one for the Goddard Center and um, so I got a call one morning and I kind of knew it was coming, to come up and talk to the center director. So this is the person who runs the Goddard Space Flight Center, um, Rob Strain at that point. And I said, oh, when do they want to see me? ASAP. So <laughs> I go up, I had already been warned by a, another friend of mine who was, was just a little bit below Rob saying, hey, Bill, you know, you really don't need to take this if you don't want to, it's okay. <laughs> I said, no, no, I want I want to hear. So I got up there and they explained the situation um it was funny because i said so uh so what's the chance of web surviving is it going to get canceled oh it's about 50 50. so i was like so you want me to leave this project that i know is going to succeed 50 <laughs> 50. but they were like yeah and, I, and and even um rob's episode the deputy center director said bill he, this guy I knew this guy for a long time he said bill you know really the only fun missions are the ones with these kind of challenges and he was pretty much right yeah um So I just, I just said, give me 24 hours to think about it. Went home talked to the wife, told her what was going on. I actually talked to the project manager, Phil at the time. Phil's feels like, Bill, I got to leave. You, if I have to pick someone, you're the person. And what they were going to do was just flip flop us. He was going to take over my mission. I would take over his mission. And, uh, the next day I gave him a call and said, yeah, I'll do it. And that was almost 12 years ago. It'll be 12 years. This What
1: year was that bill that you did that? that Uh,
2: I took over at the very end of 2010.
1: 2010. Okay, so it's 2010. Now there's uh, you. You mentioned in our previous conversations. Uh, well, before we get into that, what was your feeling when you stepped into that role? The net role the next day after you when you first showed up.
2: How, how did you feel? Besides, what the hell was I thinking? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> come on. Um, you know, I, I what I had to really do was go out and now. Start. To, it was it was interesting because the next day. I got introduced to their team, so they had this big all hands meeting. Um, I'm sitting there, and I know a bunch of the folks on this team because we had worked on Hubble together, and they're looking at me like, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "You'll find out." And Rob came in and introduced me and explained everything and just said what was going on, and then I stepped out because the, because my the guy I was replacing, was there filling up, and I wanted that team to be able to ask questions without being feeling like you know i'm there and they they can't ask the right questions so um it it was okay because i had to go back and then tell my team on landsat exactly what happened and that was that was hard because i had this when you're on a project i was on that project for almost eight years um when you're on a project that long it becomes your work family yeah so when you're saying you're leaving it it can get emotional which it did but um but otherwise you know it was like okay it's time to dive in and the first thing we had to do was replan web, would come up with it. Cause I think at that point we, there was a 2013 launch date that it we weren't going to make. And we had to replan that and say, okay, what do we think the new launch date is going to be? And, um, and that's, that's a big challenge. It's a big challenge regardless. It's even yeah. a more challenge when you come in and it's like, oh my God, I don't even know what all the acronyms mean. <laughs> right? So it's a learning process, but the folks on, on web that I came on board with us, most, most of them were there when we launched um uh, were great and they welcomed me and I, and I knew a lot of them and um we worked really well together and it was just then it just became a learning process and how much can you absorb at a time right yeah uh, without getting the, the sponge so saturated that is that's that is not retaining anymore right so you you absorb some you, you learn some stuff and then you absorb some more and learn some stuff and eventually you start making some decisions about how you want to proceed forward
1: yeah, my wow. I tell you now no. in our earlier conversations, you talk about some of the major challenges that you had. And and you specifically said that there are challenges regarding the telescope itself. And then you also talked about the challenges of the sun shield. Can yeah, there can you talk a little bit about those?
2: Yeah, there's 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 again, just like anything else, I can go on for hours talking about engineering challenges on, on web. Um so with the, with the telescope, um, I think the challenge there, and this was all the way back to when you were designing a telescope, is how do you build this thing that's this big, that's six point something meters in diameter, right? It's about 22 feet in diameter. Uh, first of all, it has to fit inside a rocket fairing. So that's the part of the rocket that the satellite goes in. So it had to be a little folded up. Um, so the challenge came down to how do you build it? You know, so it's 18, it's actually 18 segments. So when you, when yeah. you talk about when we first started focusing was actually 18 telescopes you had to focus what type of material you make it out of so we made it out of beryllium beryllium we chose that material and and no telescope had ever been built out of this material before um because it was it's very strong it's thermally stable because this is a cryogenic telescope so it gets really really cold because we look at infrared light and it has to be lightweight because you got to get it to its orbit a million miles away
1: yeah
2: Um, and then you have to you have to polish this thing so fine, and I I don't throw out spec numbers, partially because I don't remember them all, but secondly, (laughs) most folks, you you don't understand it, but so if you get an idea, if you took not envision one telescope segment is about the size of a coffee table. Now you take that coffee table and you blow it up to the size of the continental US, where the imperfections are like the rocky size of the rocky mountains. By the time you finish polishing that the rocky mountains go from being over fourteen thousand feet to two inches or less
1: oh my gosh
2: i mean that, that puts it in
1: perspective
2: so that kind of tells you the type of i mean it was a very precise yeah um polishing that was done in two phases because you polished it and then we took um i think it was six segments at a time down to a cryogenic cha- chamber in marshall space flight center down in alabama drove the the mirrors down to the cryogenic temperatures they'd be operating at. And what happens is you actually see some deformation in the mirrors. Yeah. So what you do is you measure that deformation and you take it out. And so let's say it's a bump when you now when you go back, you polish the opposite of that. You make a little valley that's the same size as that. So that now when you bring it back down to that cryogenic temperature, it's a nice, smooth surface. Yeah. Um, hold on. I'm getting something popping up here. I shouldn't. Oh, that was not good. I apologize that's okay I can hear you fine yeah it's just they wanted to do a software update I said no (laughs) Uh Um, so then you have to integrate this telescope together and now you have to test it well when you have this telescope all integrated together it's not easy to test we integrate all of our scientific instruments onto the back because they're right on the back of the telescope um, so we took a chamber at Johnson Space Center that was built for, for the Apollo era and we converted that into the world's largest cryogenic chamber. We then brought the telescope down, and I'm leaving out a lot of the steps in the middle, yeah, yeah. and ran a 110-day test where we brought that to its cryogenic temperatures. We went through all the focusing steps. We had Hurricane Harvey in the middle. <laughs> uh, uh, we, uh, we had all sorts of fun. And um, we exercised all the science instruments with, with you know, uh, simulated stars. And we actually proved during that test that we had a great telescope, that we yeah. actually had one degree. We had a phenomenal telescope and we knew we didn't have any of the issues that Hubble had. And then from there, we took that back over to Northrop Grumman to be integrated with the rest of the spacecraft. So now in parallel to that, now you got the sun shield. To give you an idea of the complexity of, of, of web, I'm going to throw some numbers out, then we'll focus in on the SunShield. Yeah. Um, so web had, during that first two and a half weeks we were on, we had 40 deployments, or around there. Those 40 deployments consisted of about 178 release devices that all had the work of nine different design types, 155 motors, 1,300 feet of cabling, 600 uh, pulley assemblies, um i can go on and on with those numbers um but out of that let's for example out of those 178 release devices 107 of those were on the sun the
1: that was the real that sounds like it was the real real Oh, it was yeah. when you think
2: about all the deployments that's was that was the scariest one yeah um we had 70 hinges uh, that 1300 feet of cabling was there most of that pulley assemblies were there and the sunshield itself. Now that that sunshield is exactly what it is. It's an umbrella that allows you to get that without having to have any kind of active cooling device to have the telescope and its instruments get down to its operating temperatures, which is slightly below uh, forty degrees Kelvin. And
1: that and that sunshield is about the size of a tennis
2: court or something. Yeah, it's the size of a tennis court. Wow. It's made up of five layers. Each layer yeah. is is less is anywhere from one to two millimeters. So you're talking about the thickness of a human hair or less my gosh uh, and it's very fragile material and this this thing has to deploy and every time we deployed it on the ground we had to fold it back up again so now you got a bunch of human handling right so occasionally you're going to get a little hole punched in it or a little tear and we had already anticipated this and we had developed techniques to patch it um but it was challenging um just to do the testing on it just the type of test we made that we had to develop because this thing's this thing's designed to, de- to deploy in a zero G environment, not yeah. in a one G environment. So you got to kind of simulate what it looks like or what it's going to be like when, when it deployed on orbit. Um, so it was it was definitely, a, it was a design challenge, but it was also a huge testing challenge. And and even folding it back up was a challenge to the point where we underestimated how long it would take to fold back up. And we took some schedule hits because of that, that we had to incorporate further on down the road. <coughs> so those kind of things, and then how you put it all together. You know, test it when it's all together. It couldn't go back into a cryogenic chamber. How do you, how do you do that with <clears throat> mathematical modeling? And um, then we had to test it for simulating the acoustic environment of the rocket, the sound environment, because if, if, that's the most violent thing you'll ever see going to orbit, yeah. and the vibration environment. And all those things had its challenges, but obviously we we did the right things because it you know worked on orbit. But it it was a challenge. It was it was challenging, but it was extraordinarily fun.
1: I can imagine, I can, well, but the, the, that sound of the enthusiasm in your voice, it certainly was, you know, now, now, Bill, uh, obviously no project goes really smoothly. And some of the things, what are some of the things that uh, made you, uh, woke you up in in the middle of the night and made you stay awake and worry about
2: it? You you know, well, I think there's there's challenges waking up in the middle of the night, typically it's if if I'm on the hook for something that usually what wakes me up. But the challenges we have mean two things. One, you have these design challenges, right? We start going, we, you test the fine problems and get the problems out of the way. So we found some design challenges, issues that we had, and we would go back and say, okay, first, if we saw this problem on orbit, do you lose the mission?
1: Yeah.
2: Now, if the answer was no, which we very rarely hit, but if the answer was no, be like, okay, well, do we really have to go back and redo a redesign or is there something else we can do? Um, and we hit, we hit a few of those and that, be, that question about how will impact on it becomes really critical the closer you get to shipping to the launch site. Um, but when you have a mission that lasted 20 years, yeah. like web, over 20 years to develop with, um, we, we've estimated somewhere around 20,000 people that have worked on it over, the, over that 20 year period, that you're gonna have human error. I mean, it's none of us are perfect, it's gonna happen. Um, and the example I always use for folks, um, so we were taking what we call the spacecraft element. so it was the sun shield with the business end of the spacecraft, which is the base spacecraft bus, which has all the electronics as the solar array and so on. Um, and it was going through acoustics testing. So you're you're checking out the sound environment it's going to see in the launch vehicle and how it does you put it inside the acoustic chamber, You blast it it's upwards of 140 decibels or so. We open up the doors of the chamber, and lo and behold, on the floor are screws, nuts, and washers. Oh, I won't say the words that we used, but <laughs> they're not pretty. And What had happened was that when the sun shields all folded up, there are covers that go over the top of it that protect it during launch. And then there is these strips, little strips of metal, that are called battens. And those battens are held down by a screw that's maybe the size of a screw you put into an outlet you know it's like an you know, outlet cover yeah um it goes up through it with a washer and a lock nut when our our observatory contractor gave the drawings to their subconscious to manufacture these pieces they left off the spec that says when you put this screw in for that lock nut to engage properly so many threads have to be above that lock nut or proud of that lock nut and it just it was a mistake somebody left it off the drawing nobody caught it so then over the course of testing all these things started to back out and then after that acoustics test you know we had to replace a thousand screws oh nuts.
1: that must have been a headache
2: uh it was a six-month hit to the program it occurred right in the middle of doing an independent review of the program so that was not a good time that was not oh, you yeah, know very convenient huh we went and we audited um, I think somewhere around 1500 or 1700 engineering drawings to make sure this mistake didn't happen anywhere else, and it didn't. Um, so that, but that's a human error. Yeah. So you try to learn from that, and then every time we found stuff like this, okay, what should we have done that this didn't happen, and apply it. And yeah. in the end, we audited thousands of drawings for other issues, other issues also um, for manufacturing type things or testing type things. I brought more NASA people in. For an independent set of eyes um, that we just brought out to out to um, Northrop Grumman, where we were integrating everything together, um, the challenges there occurred when when COVID hit, and you know, we, for about three months during COVID, I only had a handful, and I mean, literally five or less people out at Northrop Grumman. Yeah. Um, we cut back our shifts out there, um, so we did take a schedule hit because of that. We went from two shifts, two tennis shifts two 10 hour shifts a day, six days a week to one 10 hour shift a day, five days a week to allow folks to still work, but in a safe environment. Cause as a, as a project manager and as a human being, the most important resource that I had were the people and yeah. you want to keep those people yeah. in a safe and healthy environment. Um, so you pile all those things together. Eventually after about three months, we brought, we asked folks, do you want to go back? Yeah, from that because we get to the point where there's a lot of joint operations and we were going to have to stop dead in the water, and except for a couple who really had some health issues that I would have said no, you can't go if they wanted to,
0: yeah.
2: um, everybody can't went back and then I and even I started going out twice because I was like I can't ask people to travel in this and not travel myself, so I started going out twice a month. Mm-hmm. So, um, so those are kind of those are some of the kind of challenges. Probably the COVID wow. one is probably the one that kept. If you say keep me up at night, that one kept me up the most. Yeah, COVID why,
1: probably. Yeah. Because that
2: one there is affecting you know people's literally people's lives. They have
1: to look at. So Bill, now now all the testing's been done, all the shield testing's been done, and you put this thing in some sort of package, and then you you get ready to ship it. And take it to the launching site. Tell us about that. I mean, tell us about how you know what it was like. You know, when you got it down to uh, the launching site. Well, we're, hey. first of all, where was the launching site?
2: So, um, backing up. So I mentioned earlier, we're a partnership with European Space Agency. They provide the rocket. So their launch site is in French Guiana in Kourou, in French Guiana. Um, going down to the launch site, everything with with Webb is a challenge, including logistics and moving it around. Of course, uh, to get to the launch site, um, we would not fit. At that point, once we integrated the whole thing together, we were inside a shipping container. We no longer fit to a C five, which is you know the biggest shipping cargo plane we have. Right? We couldn't fit into a C five, so we had to go by boat. The other thing we had was if even if you could fit to a C five, where the landing strip was, and where the launch site was, where there were seven bridges, none of which would ex- would would handle the loads and the weight of not just web but web and all its associated equipment that goes along with it when you just ship it.
1: yeah so those those nasty little details like that that kind of yeah, getting
2: well, you and then you're right you can't really you can't really you're not going to improve the infrastructure of a country. So yeah. we actually went by a ship uh, the same ones the Europeans use to bring rockets and such down down we left um, we loaded it up at a naval um, at a naval Weapons station in Seal Beach in California um went down along the coast and then went through the panama canal and then around over to french guiana and that took about 16 days if i remember correctly um once we get down there you, un- you gotta unpack you gotta get the telescope all configured for being down there and then we tested we spent a lot of time doing electrical testing make sure nothing damaged during shipment we couldn't do any deployments but we could do all sorts of other testing um so we had then we had to prepare it for launching um we had one issue down there so you actually fuel the satellite so you fuel JWST at the launch site
1: yeah
2: um and so you go, you leave the room clean room that you're in where you're doing your testing and so on and you actually go to another facility to do the uh fueling and in that facility they also attach the adapter Oh, for lack of a better word, an adapter band that goes on there for, to mount you to the launch vehicle. And now, no what, what is the fuel on the web? Uh, it's it's hydrazine, mm-hmm. or an oxidizer. Okay. Um, so while they were putting this, this what we call a launch plant band on, and think thinking of it as a band that with a cinch on it, you tighten it up and it cinches it really tight. And this is the launch vehicle folks do. They're putting this on, they're supposed to tighten it so many, so many turns. You let it sit for a half hour, let it settle, and then you finish tightening it whatever reason, and I heard way too many different stories, they didn't tighten it all the way, but they lost count. So instead of backing it out and redoing it, they left it sit, they let it sit and all oh, this thing, this thing just let loose because they didn't, hadn't had enough, they didn't turn enough turns on it. They said it sounded like a shotgun going off in the clean room, this thing just lets loose, there's a kind of a cage underneath it, all the parts fold down there so nobody gets hurt hard and get hurt, but it sends a shock. right up through the spacecraft so now you're sitting there like okay now did we damage something so we spent an extra week down there doing all sorts of testing to make sure we did not minimize any kind of risk to when we got on orbit and it all worked great we had no problems but it took an extra week of time to prove that to ourselves and our poor dynamicist folks did all sorts of every time i think they're done they had to work more weekends doing all sorts of analysis again Um, but they did a great job and once we got through that, we fueled it. Um, and then we go out to the building. Um, it's called the BAF, which is a French acronym, but it's like the Vehicle Assembly Building down at Kennedy, where you stack the rocket and then you put your satellite on top of the rocket. That was really cool because um, the day after, they, it's a hazardous operation when they actually lift the satellite and put it up there. When met up there, They let us. they let myself and a few of us go up to basically say goodbye. Oh, that must have been emotional. It was because you go up there and you can't get right next to it because there's a clean curtain around it but you can see it and you don't really and it's basically almost like in a a constructed room so you really can't tell you're sitting on top of a rocket except when you take the elevator up and you're actually seeing the rocket out the little window in the elevator as you go up (laughs) but um it was it was emotional but it was also the the cool factor was way up there (laughs) When when you're up there looking at that um and then we came back down and then the next day they began the process of putting the, the cone which we call the fairing of the rocket over the top of that uh, when that was done we rolled out to the, to the launch pad and at that point on our launch date um, we had to move one day to christmas day because of a, 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 some high winds predicted for christmas eve and um on christmas eve that afternoon myself and my counterpart at North of Grumman, who we, we're since we're, we're great friends now, you know, we're almost like brothers, we, we yeah. work so closely together. We got to go out to the launch pad and again say goodbye, just so you can't actually see what it. was that like, Bill. That must have been that was like, actually yeah. to me more emotional because yeah. <laughs> now it's like I know the next morning it's going right, yeah, yeah. Um, I
1: mean, you've but, been with this thing for a decade,
2: yep, yeah, it was it's hard. <laughs> and I think the hard part of it is I knew at that. Right around that time, it sinks in. Like the folks at the launch site, they don't support the on-orbit operations. Yeah. So there's some folks that I see down here that I'm, that I'm friends, I become friends with over the years, both at Northrop and at NASA, who start to go like this. Right. Yeah. They're going either to new jobs or whatever. So you have that whole personal connection thing that starts to, to impact you. Yeah. And then you're looking at it like. And for me knowing that i'm going to retire after this it's like wow this is kind of like the last hurrah it's the best hurrah i've had oh my gosh hurrah. and uh so but you know we were out there for a little bit because then we had to come back grab a bite to eat and then try to get some get some sleep before we had to get up at like 9 30 in the evening to get go get on console for the launch next morning
1: so let's talk about on the console now you're on the console this thing and then uh, you're getting down toward the final countdown. So what was what was those last uh, 10 minutes or so like?
2: Um, you know, I'm, I'm, well, first I've done spacecraft operations. So I'm, I stay pretty calm, whether it's actually operating a satellite or during the launch. Yeah. Um, but uh, at that point, you're basically letting the launch vehicle folks do their thing. Um, there's a, what they call the red green button, which is not really a button, but a console thing would have touched that if something because you're powering up the satellite. And we started that at about launch minus 22 minutes, 20 minutes, somewhere right around there. And when that's and during this process, right, if something goes on the satellite, I can I can go ahead and stop the launch. Yeah. I can push the, the button and say nope, we're not ready to go. But once we hit the point of we're power positive, we can we've we verified that power is on, on the spacecraft, I basically gave the go for launch at like uh, launch minus 15 minutes. Yeah, I had the ability to stop the launch down to about L minus. I want to say nine minutes or yeah. something like that. But once you get past that point, I can go to the, the, to the launch director and say, Hey, we got a problem, but he's the only one who can stop it. And at that point, we're not doing anything. We're just sitting there. If we're good at that point, we're good through that whole time. So basically you're just watching the rocket go through their stuff and the launch vehicle folks, you know, they've done this hundred times. Yeah. They're cool as cucumbers. So there really isn't a heck of a lot of excitement down in the control room itself on console.
1: Yeah.
2: If you turn around, looked up into the VIP area um, where people were sitting. At, now they're all within. Oh, the- they're all
1: they all aren't they? Right.
2: They're abuzz. It's a buzz. It's a party for them, right?
1: Yeah.
2: And about L minus two minutes, they're all running outside.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. And of
2: course, it's raining and it's cloudy as anything. We had a better view sitting inside. <laughs> I mean, granted, you can get the, the real sense of it outside, but literally because of a little cloud cover within 30 seconds after launch, you couldn't see it. It's up in the clouds. They're all coming back in. Yeah. Uh, but even being in the control center, you could feel the sound of that launch. I mean, that's, that was very impressive.
1: Wow. What was it like once that thing left, you know, once it took off, all of a sudden that you're, you're part of your family
2: was leaving you sending I mean, your kid that, off to college <laughs> you're sending your kid off to college yeah for sure a million yeah.
1: miles away yep oh my gosh now what was what was it like uh, you know for you had to wait almost a month you know before it got into the place by the way where did it go what was the, the location's called it operates in a halo orbit circling around a point known as the sun earth L2 lagrange point What's it uh, all about? I mean, you know.
2: point two, it's just, it's a point where you can pretty much sit and do very minimal thruster firings to maintain your orbit. It's a it's yeah. nice gravity balance point. But we went out there. Gravity balance between the sun and the earth, right? Right, right. Okay. And, we're, and, and we're actually beyond that, but we're at a point where, you know, we're not being pulled back towards the sun, but we're also not being pulled out towards anything else. So you know, okay. it's a nice, it's a nice balance. It's stable. Point. But you really go out there because what you always want is the earth and the sun at the back, the business end, the, te- the hot side of the telescope, the hot side of the telescope sits at plus 185 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Cold side, the side that does all the observations in the sign of the telescope sits, sits at almost minus 500 degrees Fahrenheit.
1: Now that is the,
2: that, that, that that's
1: a difference. That's a temperature
2: difference. That's a huge delta. Yeah. And so at that Lagrange point too, we actually orbit the sun at the same rate the Earth does. Yeah. So 365 days. So the Earth, the Earth and the sun are always facing the back, the hot side of the spacecraft.
1: So it's kind of like if you had if you were out there yourself and you had an umbrella, you'd always have that umbrella between you and the sun, right?
2: Yep. You and the sun and the Earth.
1: That's yep. so that. That's the kind of thing, I guess.
2: Hitting the telescope because you won't be able to achieve the science you want to achieve. Mainly
1: because that telescope has to be so cold because it looks in the infrared, which is right. heat, which senses right. heat. Yep, <laughs> yep. So. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So, uh, my golly, that you must have a a great feeling of accomplishment. And what was it like for you, uh, Bill? to see the first images. I mean, not the test images and so forth, but the, when they got it in focus and started started uh, sending back some images, what was it like for you? It, it was pretty
2: phenomenal. I mean, we, we got hints, as you mentioned early on, but some engineering images. And I would go back. So like I mentioned earlier, when you start focusing the telescope, we got the all deployments, now we start yeah. focusing the telescope. You start out with 18 telescopes, you focus them, you get it down to where it's one beautiful image. And so we start seeing these images, and they're not being released yet. But I would go back into the office area where all the folks who are doing the, doing the telescope focusing stuff are sitting, right? And they're there and they're taking images all the time. And I said, and they're having a blast. And they're like, Bill, look at this. You've never seen these galaxies before. I said, guys, tell me the truth. You're really done. And you're just playing at this point. <laughs> no, no, no. We're still working. We're still. I said, Yeah, yeah. You're just this is like um let's see what this telescope can do, right? Um, uh-huh. uh, so you got to see some of that, and then we released some of those first images, and even that where we had that perfectly focused star, the real attention got drawn to the galaxies that we were seeing.
1: Yeah, that the galaxies in, are around it, the little tiny little red
2: that, dots were stuff that right. have never been seen before. And and that was a cropped image the full yeah. image which is on my phone is one of my baby images baby pictures um I, one of the engineers started doing a mosaic and he stopped counting when he exceeded 250 galaxies in that first picture
1: oh my gosh
2: <laughs> you know so now you, you fast forward and we start doing some of the science images and i got to see myself and a few of the folks uh, we got to see them about two weeks before they got released to the public yeah and um we just went into a guy's office and we're just standing around and one of my operational scientists, Jane, she's in there and he pulls up the first image and our draws just dropped. I mean, we all knew it was gonna be phenomenal, yeah. but not like this. It just really blew your mind. Huh? So the guy pulls it up on his screen and he says, okay, who wants to drive I me? Mean, you know, can blow it up? So I told Jane, I said, you, you're the scientist and she actually has observing time on web. I said, you go ahead and, and play. And it was amazing, the stuff that we were seeing. Oh my gosh! And um, it was it was just phenomenal. Your are just your door just drops and it's like, you know, I'm on a 12 years, but there's people in that room with me who've been on a pushing 25 years. Wow. And um, you know, it, it really talk about job satisfaction.
1: Oh my gosh, it We're all at
2: uh... home at that point. And then you know, two weeks later, we did the the whole big public release, and that was fun. Um, yeah. Kind of I enjoyed that. I got to get up and talk a little bit. I got, I got more than my ten minutes of fame out of this thing by being interviewed on all different, all like CBS and NBC and ABC and stuff like that.
1: Oh, Bill, you got more than fame out of it. <coughs> You've got the satisfaction of doing something. You know, you would make. I'll tell you, somebody who would really be proud of you is Carl Sagan.
2: You yeah, know, Carl Sagan. Yeah, I, thank you.
1: Yeah, he would have been really proud of you. I I wish that he could have seen these things. Yep. Yeah, I know. no, it's just, it's kind of chokes you up to think about it. So what are your, uh, what are your expectations for the web? I know, I know you're not on the science end of it in terms of mm-hmm. the astronomy and that sort of stuff, but just as a, you know, person who's interested in astronomy and that sort of thing, you know, what's
2: your, uh, what are your, what do you want to see? Um, you know, it's I'll, there's there's two things. So let's talk with the, the obvious, well, some of the obvious things, at least, at least to me as a kid. I got a, you know, I grew up watching the guys land on the moon. My parents got me my first telescope or my only telescope when I was in junior high. I want to say it was sixth grade. And you know, first you look at the moon, and that was really cool. And then you start looking at the planets. And I was always fascinated looking at all the, you know, whether it's Saturn, and Jupiter, and so on. <clears throat> and um, so the the discovery of exoplanets over the last 10 years and what we're doing with exoplanets on web, I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, well, we've already imaged one exoplanet, which was phenomenal, but we're looking at exoplanets and we're able to determine the makeup, the chemical makeup of that planet to see if it has the basic elements of life as we know it. And we're already finding that.
1: I mean, and that's, and that's only just a few work. months after it's been out there. Just think yeah.
2: of what's going to happen in the next yeah. two years. Yeah. So that's, that's really spectacular. Yeah. Um, and then there's, and it was the same thing with Hubble. It's the unknown unknowns.
1: Yeah, we're gonna okay.
2: find stuff we've never thought of, right? Somebody will take an observation. Well, you know what? If I do this and this and this with the telescope, let's try that. And you try it, and you find holy, cow. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, holy that's of, right, and that's that's how black holes were discovered with with Hubble. It was oh, like yeah. wow, you yeah. know, this is, it's so it's that it's that unknown unknowns that are gonna be uh, probably just blow us totally blow us away and really expand our understanding of the universe and where we came from and and so on.
1: Yeah, well, you know, you know, Bill, you told me early on, and I have actually queued this thing up, and I hope it works. But uh, after uh, right around the time it was launched, uh, there was a uh, in on about the, I think the 19th of July, uh, there was a concert at the Meriwether Post Pavilion in Columbia uh, with Jimmy Buffett. And he, uh, he, he, let me put that on.
2: Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. I'll, then I can tell the Buffett story. <laughs> okay. we will tell that. Here we go.
1: Well, tell me first of all what led this up to it. He came out for a tour, didn't he?
2: Well, even before that, um, I have I'm a I'm a big Buffett fan. I'm a parrot head, and periodically while we were commissioning, it was a six month period of commissioning, I would send notes out to the team congratulating them getting to the next step. So in one of the notes I wrote, I I added, I, I included in a note a piece from Jimmy Buffett song, one of his new ones. From the last couple of years that talked about your team and, and, and just was really nice. And I put that in there. One of our scientists sees it and he says, Hey, you know, we ought to put that on our public blog, the whole note. I said, all right. <clears throat> so he put that on the blog. It now gets picked up by some of the different Parrothead websites. Next thing you know, then my son-in-law also has, has, he's a media and he had interviewed Jimmy a long, long time ago, knows his manager. He sent it a copy of the blog to his manager. Manager sends it to Jimmy. Jimmy's like, hey, I want to talk to this guy. So, cause he's a huge space fan. So he did a Zoom call with me and my family, which was very, very nice. He's a super nice guy. And he's like, but Bill, you know, I want to see you guys when I come to Meriwether, you can come backstage and blah, 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 blah. Few months later, I get, cause now he has my cell phone. First I start getting random text messages. Yeah. One, similar pictures with him, with, with his telescope, doing imaging with ccd detectors of the orion nebula i'm like hey this is really cool blah blah and then i like i sent him a couple of my baby pictures said hey don't don't share them but here you go and it gets him all excited but then he called me and he said we want to do a dedication to web and he was asking about images to jimmy the images aren't coming out till june and um and they're not even letting me get copies advanced copies of them so i can't do anything and it won't be high res what i get so when they came out in June, I sent him and his tech guy a note. Said this is how you get the high res images, and he debuted debuted it um, at the Murray Weather Post. Where, where me the day before the concert, he came up to uh, our control center. We gave him a tour. Some of my senior folks were there. We gave him a couple of presentations on how we focused, and how and on the science. We sat him on console, put a headset on him. You know, was his social media guys there taking pictures and posting pictures in real time. On his twitter account but they put together this beautiful dedication to the web team that he's actually now done he's on break now until he starts playing again another month um but he's played at most of his concerts now it's, it's the last song of the of the night with just him and a couple of his band members and as he's singing this song that's not he didn't write, it, a jesse winchester song uh defying gravity he plays it he puts all our images in the back and we went crazy when we were at meriwether and a bunch of my folks were at it because they gave him a bunch of tickets for free. So we were all going crazy when he was playing this. Well,
1: I'll tell you what. I'll play it a little bit, and then you and I can see the shared screen here. And when right. we do the webinar, well, well, we'll share the screen. But I, I think, and I hope that we can, uh, we can have this uh, that the audio will pick it up. Uh, so I'm going to play this. It's about four minutes long. So we'll just do this because it's important. Is that okay with you? Oh no, it's great. Okay, here I we go. Boston. Here we go. I'd, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to send this out tonight because uh, I got to, uh, I got to see something special yesterday. So this is a little song that's dedicated to the, the great team of the James Webb Space Telescope who are uh, showing us things that we need to be looking at out there. So uh, thank you. Did you, you hear this okay? Yesterday, but yep. to, uh, Jesse Winchester wrote this song a long time ago. So we uh, put this together for, uh, especially for the James Webb team. Thank you so much for yesterday. Thank you for what you do. As Carl Sagan said, this is the only home we have. We've got to take care of it.
2: Wow. Yeah, I still get chills every time I see it.
1: I know, I know. You know, when we do the uh, webinar next week, we'll put that on too, okay?
2: Yeah. And, and well, the, well, uh, we'll the next night for that, when he's done it other times, the way he introduces it is my good friend Bill Oakes. Yeah. yeah. And that just, that uh, just. Oh, just, my God. Like, well,
1: I, Bill, it's how, does that, how does that song make you feel? Does that kind uh, of sum up your last decade?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a great um, song. Yeah, I mean it's great. Um, the, with the images combined with it, it's just it's a very emotional point. Even at a, a, a Buffett show where you're partying and having fun, that's still a very emotional emotional point.
1: Well, I'll tell you, from uh, for a for an astronomy buff like myself, I mean I, I'm in love with astronomy. I want to thank you. Oh, thank this. you. I really appreciate. It. Well, and what's next now for Bill Oaks?
2: Uh, let's see, I retire officially, no, I'm semi-retired now, I'm just taking leave um, at the end of September. But I need to work a few more years, so I'm going to go work for Aerospace Corporation out in El Segundo at LA Air Force Base and uh, do some work there. Um, I can't represent any company back to NASA for a year after I retire, so I'll do some work with the folks over in the Department of Defense and help them out a little bit wherever I can and hopefully bring some value added.
1: Well, if you ever come to Chicago, you stop in, okay? I will. Okay, well, Bill, so thank you so, so very much for being our guest today uh, on It's All About Skills.
2: Thanks. And
1: uh, as for me, I'm an internationally certified coach, career coach. They specialize in career management, skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. And you can get in touch with me through my website, charliejetcoaching.com or podcastpq.com, or you can hear the podcast or these the uh the episodes of our skills on our podcasts of uh, skills on it's all about Skills.com. And to all of you, I want to thank you all for listening today and we'll see you next time as we discuss the critical skills on it's all about skills.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.